I want you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34. And while you're doing that, let me welcome our West Campus. It's been a while since I've been with you, but it's an honor, it's a privilege to be able to be with you this morning. I love America. I feel privileged to have been born here. I feel privileged to live here. I've had the opportunity to travel all around the world. I've been in several countries in South America, in the Middle East, in Europe, been all over Asia and Central Asia. And though there are many places throughout the world that are beautiful, there isn't a single country that compares with America. When I think about the many people who have given their lives so that we can have the freedoms that we have here, I'm overwhelmed. But I would be less than honest this morning if I told you I'm not heartbroken. I'm not concerned. I'm not disappointed. I want you to listen to my assessment. And here is my assessment. If America continues in her present direction of internal moral decay and spiritual rebellion, we are in for a fall that is going to surprise each and every one of us. The America that I grew up loving has changed. And I'm not talking about changed for the better. Now, don't get me wrong. America has never been without sin. But the truth is, even before we were an independent nation, we had our eyes and our hearts focused on God. We realized, even though we were less than a perfect people, that God was our creator. And any success, any blessings that we had experienced ultimately came from him. When the pilgrims landed here on the Mayflower, they signed a document that was known as the Mayflower Compact. And they told their intent of coming to this new world. This is what they said. For the glory of God... And the advancement of the Christian faith. These first pilgrims were coming to America for two reasons. To bring glory to Almighty God and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. On a cliff overlooking that spot where they landed, there is a statue commemorating their faith. It's of a man holding an open Bible in one hand. And then his other hand is pointing with his index finger pointed toward heaven. When I think about our founding fathers, those who declared their independence from England, those who fought to establish a free nation, I see that many of them, if not most of them, were strong believers. Patrick Henry, who who is credited with that statement that he gave to the Commonwealth of Virginia, give me liberty or give me death, also said this. He said, this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to listen to something else he said that I believe is very profound. He said, bad men cannot make good citizens. It is when a people forget God that tyrants forge their chains. A vitiated state of morals, a corrupted public conscience is incompatible with freedom. Let that sink in. 
when we remove our morality, when we no longer have a public conscience, it won't be long before we lose those freedoms that we hold dear. John Adams, who was our second president and was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, said this. He said, suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book. And every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, frugality, and industry. To justice, kindness, and charity toward his fellow man. And to piety, love, and reverence toward Almighty God. What a utopia, what a paradise would that region be? Thomas Jefferson, who is credited with the separation of church and state, said this about the separation of church and state. He said, the First Amendment has created a wall of separation between church and state. But that wall is a one-directional wall. It keeps the government from running the church. But it makes sure that Christian principles will always Stay in government. John Jay was the first chief justice of the Supreme Court. The same Supreme Court that had their ruling a little over a week ago. This is what John Jay said. By conveying the Bible to people thus circumstance, we certainly do them a most interesting kindness. We thereby enable them to learn that man was originally created and placed in a state of happiness. But becoming disobedient was subjected to the degradation and evils which he and his posterity have since experienced. John Jay was a strong believer. He was the first president of the American Bible Society. He believed and he said the only way that the world is ever going to have world peace is through the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, he was a man before his time as well. Because in 1799, after three tries, he got the state of New York to outlaw slavery. And I praise God for that kind of bold leadership. And yet, if, and I state if, America was ever truly a Christian nation, we no longer are. And you need to understand that. We have turned our back on God, not yesterday, not last week. We turned our back on God years ago. Unfortunately, there are many today who are just realizing this. Too many of us today believe that we are like the nation of Israel experiencing God's blessings upon us as the people of God called America. And yet what we need to understand is we are not the nation of Israel. We are the church of Jesus Christ like at its founding when it was living in a pagan empire, a pagan Rome. And unless we continue or unless we see that we are Christians in a pagan society, we will never be able to impact our society the way we need to. God used those first Christians in a matter of three centuries 
to totally transform the known world in that day. And I believe that God can do the same today. In Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 11, God raises a question as he's talking to his people. And this is what God asks. He says, has any nation ever traded its gods for a new one? Even though they are not gods at all. And then God says this, yet my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. And understand, we have done the exact same thing. In 1962, the Supreme Court outlawed prayer in public schools. In the very next year, in 1963, it outlawed Bible reading in public schools. It may not have been their intent, but those two moves began to remove God from the hearts and the minds of children in the public arena. In 1973, we legalized abortion, and since that day, that horrific day, we have murdered over 60 million babies. We have always had adultery, we've always had sexual immorality, and we've always seen it was wrong until it seems like about the 60s. And in the 1960s, we began to to dignify adultery, we began to magnify immorality. The things that were once frowned upon were now condoned, and they were not only condoned, they were celebrated. And what about homosexuality? Something that that the entire world once saw as unnatural has moved out of the closet and is now publicly displayed on the front porch. We have become a nation where, where the criminal is deified, the victim is vilified. A nation where evil is called good and, and good is called evil. We have become a nation where where the life of a snail darter has become more valued than the life of a baby in the womb. We have become a nation that is marked by moral regression, sexual revolution, and spiritual rebellion. And we applaud. We celebrate. But we don't realize that our decisions are not preparing us for a magnificent future. They are simply setting us up for a terrible judgment. In 1965, what, what seems like an eternity ago, Billy Graham was working on, on the manuscript for a book that he was writing called World of Flame. He had just finished writing a chapter which, which he vividly described the sinful condition of America at that time. And, and he gave it to his wife, Ruth, to read. And as she read that chapter, she came back and, and to Billy and she was sobered by what she read. She returned the document to him. And then Ruth Graham said this to her husband, Billy, if God doesn't come soon and bring judgment to the United States, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now understand, what was said in the 1960s is more true today than ever before. Our downfall 
as a nation isn't going to come from Russia. It's not going to come from China. It's not going to come from Muslim extremists or a host of other external enemies. We are killing ourselves. And I want you to listen carefully. Because America is sliding full speed down a slope. And we are sliding toward destruction. And the only thing that can stop us is a move of God. I want you to hear me. And this may sound solemn. It may sound somber. You may dislike it. But I believe it's the truth. We as Christians need to be very careful pledging our allegiance to a nation that is dishonoring, disrespecting, and is removing God. It's time for us to realize that our allegiance is first and foremost to a holy God, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, some would say today that it's too late for America to experience revival, and and maybe it is. Others would tell us that that all this is part of God's plan, and, and God's plan is judgment upon America, and maybe that is God's plan. But I would say to you, That until the end comes, the people of God need to do everything we can to see God bring revival. And that brings me to the verse I want us to focus on for a few minutes. Proverbs 14. Solomon was the king of Israel. And at this point in their history, Israel was at the height of their power and their wealth. If you've read through Proverbs over the last eight or nine weeks, as we've been in this study, you've recognized that Solomon is writing this book to his son, who would be king. And he's telling him how to live a life filled with wisdom. He is telling him how to have discipline and and prudence in his life. He is telling him how to make wise decisions. And now he comes to that point where he's talking to his son about the nation that he is going to rule. And he's telling him that that as he rules, there are two paths that he can take. One is a path of disgrace and shame. The other is a path of blessings and exaltation. I want you to listen to what Solomon said In verse 34. It's a short verse. He said, righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a disgrace to any people. The New Living Translation says it that this way. Godliness makes a nation great. But sin is a disgrace to any people. Now though that is the verse I want you to plaster on social media today. I want you to put it on Facebook. I want you to put it on Twitter. I want you to put it on Instagram because I want you to listen very carefully. If there is one message that our nation needs to hear as we celebrate our independence, it's this message. Righteousness exalts. Sin is a disgrace. Now, there are four words that I want you to look at that I want to unpack for us this morning that I think are vital. The first word is sin. And I want you to know that our sin 
is always rebellion against God. Our sin is choosing our way rather than God's way. Now, if you have been a part of Northside long and, and, and you've gone through the scripture with us, you know that there are a number of different words in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that are translated sin. This word, this Hebrew word, is kata'ah. It is found 234 times in the Old Testament. It's found seven times in the book of Proverbs. The root word from which it comes is found 580 times in the Old Testament, making it the most used word translated sin in the Old Testament. It literally means to miss the mark or miss the way. So, if the passing grade on a test is 70 and you make 60, you've missed the mark. If the, if the minimum score on an SAT is 1,100 to get into the college that you want to get into and, and you make an 800, you have missed the mark. If you run track and you are qualifying in the 400 meters and the qualifying time to move on to the next round is 55 seconds for that 400 meter and you run it in 60 seconds, you have missed the mark. Now, when this is referring to God, it means to miss God's mark, to miss God's way, to to miss God's standard. Now, listen, if there is a God and that God created everything, then he and he alone is the one who is able to determine right and wrong. He and he alone is the one who is able to determine good from bad. If God says, this is what I want you to do, then this is the standard. If God says, this is how I want you to live, then this is the mark. God is saying to us that he has a standard that he wants us to live by. And if we don't reach it, if we dismiss it, if we choose to go against it, we have missed the mark. And it seems like today more than ever, We are living in an age in which we have replaced God's law, God's mark, with our own opinions. By the choices we have made, by the laws that we have enacted, we have said that we know better than God what is best for us and what is best for our nation. And that is simply rebellion against God. And understand, rebellion is always a serious issue. And so that leads me to the second word. And the second word is reproach. Our sin is a reproach against God. Now, if you have a Bible or you have multiple translations, you will discover that 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 word, that Hebrew word, is translated three different ways depending on the translation in this verse. It's translated reproach. It's translated disgrace. It's translated shame, and all of those are correct. But here's what's interesting. Even though that word is found over 200 times in the Old Testament, it is only translated this way two times. It is translated this way in this passage, and it is translated this way in Leviticus 20, verse 17. In that passage... God is speaking to his people about various types of sexual sin. 
And in verse 17, he says this. If a man marries his sister and has sexual relationship with her, it is a disgrace. It is shameful. It is a wicked thing. And understand, whenever we choose to go our way rather than God's way, whenever we determine that our way is better than God's way, it is a shameful thing. It is a disgraceful thing. But understand, the overwhelming majority of times, over 245 times, this word isn't translated this way. As a matter of fact, this word is a very well-known Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word hesed, which we most often translate loving kindness, mercy, favor. So whenever we we read in Scripture the Old Testament about God's favor, God's loving kindness, it is this word. And so what is God saying here? Why is this important? Here's why. Because God is saying that our sin is so serious. Our sin is so reprehensible in God's way that the only way we can ever have hope Because of our sin is God's loving kindness, God's favor, God's mercy. In the Old Testament, they expressed God's desire or their desire for God's loving kindness this way. They would come before God in sackcloth and ashes. They would humble themselves before God. They would put themselves prostrate out on the ground before God saying, We are unworthy. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need you to show us your loving kindness. You see, this will require us as a nation to first of all realize that we are accountable to God. That we have sinned against Him. That that we need Him. We will never cry out for mercy Until we do that, and and I'm afraid that we're not there yet. It's just sin. Reproach. The third word is, is righteous. You see, our only hope is to repent and become righteous. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach, a disgrace. Sin is a shame to any people. But here's the problem. Our righteousness... Regardless of how hard we try, we'll not measure up. And tragically, most of us don't want to admit that. We don't want to admit that our righteousness is not enough. We have blinded our eyes to our utter lack of righteousness. But the Bible doesn't mince its words. The Bible says this in Isaiah 64, Our righteous acts acts are but filthy rags. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 3, it says there is no one righteous, not even one of us. In Ecclesiastes 7, it says there is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Jesus even addressed this issue. In Luke 18, he said to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told them this parable. And then he told them the parable of the tax collector and And the Pharisee. Job understood our predicament when he said, But how can a mortal 
be righteous before God? And the answer is, we can't on our own. That's why we must humble ourselves and repent. In 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, God gives His people, Israel, a, 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 a plan to follow when they get out of kilter with God. This is what God says. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will heal their land and forgive their sin. But therein lies the problem. We don't want to turn from our sin, but hear me. Without repentance... There is no hope. And once we repent, then we are in a position to receive God's righteousness. The righteousness that only comes from Jesus. That's why many of our early leaders were not religionists, they were Christians. They realized that the world didn't need another religion. They realized that the world didn't need another God. They realized that the world needed hope and the only hope was Jesus Christ and the righteousness that he can bring. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus lived on earth, he lived a sinless life. He never sinned. He was perfectly righteous. When he died on that cross, something happened. All the sin of the world was placed on Jesus. And all of his righteousness was placed into an account that is available to each and every one of us who cry out in faith to Jesus Christ. And understand, this righteousness is a righteousness that changes our life. In 1 John, it says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous. When we experience God's grace and forgiveness, something happens to us. And let me tell you, friends, I want you to listen. A purging is coming. And it's not coming because the church initiates it. It's coming because the people who are part of the church for the wrong reasons are going to be leaving in droves. Hear me. Mark my word. And when it happens, just like Jesus said in John 15 about pruning the branches, the church is going to take off. And the church is going to be used as an instrument that is going to radically affect, in a positive way, the United States. And so we need to pursue righteousness. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst out of, after righteousness. Paul said, man of God, flee sin. Pursue righteousness. So do you crave righteousness? Is that your desire? Are you willing to repent? 
to turn from sin and pursue righteousness. Now, how do we do this? Well, listen, it begins personally with each and every one of us. Here's, here's our problem. A week ago Friday, Christians all over America were up in arms about a decision the Supreme Court made. A decision that has little impact on you personally. And instead of looking out on the horizon at other people and their sins, what you and I need to do is look in the mirror and focus on our sins. Because understand, in the end, it's not the sin of homosexuality out in the streets by the radical left that is bringing down America. It's the sins of the people who claim to be the people of God who is bringing down America. And so you and I need to get on our face before God, plead with God to show us our sin individually, specifically, and we need to come clean before God. May I tell you one of those sins? And I pray to God that it's not in the heart of any of you, but I imagine it is. Racism. You say, oh no, we dealt with that a long time ago. Well, let me just say, when, when the debate came up about removing the Confederate flag, racism raised its ugly head in an awful way. You say, no, that was just about freedom of speech and freedom of expression. No, listen to me. I'm on social media as well. I read multiple papers. And when you begin to call people ignorant and stupid and things like that because someone says maybe it's time to take down this flag, to bring about unity, and we get all upset about that, then let me tell you, we've got a problem. Because our allegiance isn't to a Confederate flag. Our allegiance is to the one who shed his blood on Calvary's cross. And I want you to hear me right now. I am willing to take down every flag if taking down the flags would bring a uh, revival to America. Because it's not a flag that's our hope. It's Jesus who is our hope. And we need to get to the point where we deal with our sins. Whether it be racism, whether it be sexual sin, whether it be pride, whether it be greed, whatever it may be, we need to deal with our sin. Then next, we deal with the church's sin. The Bible says that judgment begins in the house of God. It is not until we deal with our sins as the people of God corporately that we are ever going to be able to see God bring revival. That's why the Southern Baptist Convention over the last several years has made numerous statements apologizing for the sin and our part in the sin of slavery. Why did we do that? Not because I was a part of slavery, but our convention was. Our convention broke from the Northern Convention so that our churches could send slave owners as missionaries. 
That's why we broke off with the Northern Baptist Convention, the American Baptist Convention at that time. And so we've got to look at ourselves corporately. And once we deal with our personal sins and we deal with our corporate sins, it is only then that we can deal with our national sins. And so we begin with us, then we move to the church, and then we move to national revival. The final word is the word exalt. When we do what God tells us to do, God will reward us. God will lift us up. That's what the word means. Righteousness exalts a nation. Righteousness lifts up a nation. It promotes a nation. In other words, it puts a nation in a position where God's blessings can fall on that nation. Now, I really do believe, and I want you to hear me, I really do believe that God has blessed America. I believe that God can bless America again. But it is only when we acknowledge our sin that we're going to put ourselves in a position of being blessed by God. And so here's what I want us to do. I want our keyboardists to come and and just play softly on the keyboard for a few minutes. And I want us as a body to corporately come to this altar. And I want us to begin to pour out our heart to God. Understand. Understand that, that one time, one moment, one prayer is not going to bring revival. But as we begin to plead before the throne of God, we begin to repent of our sins, we will put ourselves in a position where God can bless us. And so if you will, I want to encourage you to come here to the altar. Everyone who is physically able and just kneel down and join me. And let's just spend a time praying for humility. Asking God for forgiveness. Repenting of our sins. Ask God to break your heart. We're told the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. When is the last time you've been broken over your sin? Our sins. When is the last time that you've cried because... Your sin is a disgrace. It brings shame. It calls Jesus to have to die so that we could have His mercy, His loving kindness. Cry out to God.
Father, forgive us. Forgive us for our pride, self-righteousness, our arrogance. Forgive us for our immorality. Forgive us for thinking that we are better than others because of the color of our skin or the, the country that we are from. Forgive us, Father, for murdering millions and millions of babies in the name of choice. Forgive us for celebrating sexual immorality, both heterosexual and homosexual sin. Forgive us for making a mockery of of holy matrimony. Not just, not just with the Supreme Court's decision of a week ago, but the, the skyrocketing divorce rate. Forgive us, Father, for For compromising your word. Forgive us, Father, for for not being bold with love. Forgive us, Father, for not showing grace and mercy to those who are caught in sin. Oh, forgive us. Father, create in us a clean heart. Renew your spirit within us. We humbly beg you, plead with you to do what only you can do. And that is bring a revival to us. Bring a spiritual awakening to our nation. We know you are our only hope. We cry out to you. We plead with you. We ask you, Father, to to use us in whatever way is fitting and pleasing to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.